This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic. But today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton to adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we have lessons from the midterms about women who support Trump. Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Also, Frederick Douglass, the black abolitionist, he was the most famous black American of the 19th century. We'll speak about him with Eric Foner. He says Douglass's political ideas can help us in our struggles today. But first, George H.W. Bush died on Saturday. He was 94, elected president in 1988. The official funeral was Wednesday. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Bush 41 has gotten extremely favorable obituaries. Almost everybody is saying he was a good president. They seem to be contrasting him to another Republican president. Yes, I think if we make a list of people who would benefit by comparison with Donald Trump, we wouldn't have time to go through it on uh, on this podcast <laughs> or on uh, the, the 20,000 subsequent podcasts. So it, to say it's a low bar to clear is an insult to low bars. <laughs> Well, the, the standard approach is to start with the good things that Bush did and then mention that not everything was good. Here we'd like to do it the other way around. What would you say is the worst thing that George Bush 41 did as president? Well, a number of things. Certainly uh, encouraging the wars in Central America, the uh, consequences of which uh, we experience this very day with uh, migrant caravans out of Central America. Certainly his mode of getting elected, which was a scabrous way of playing the race card and the Willie Horton ad, and Bush always seemed to sort of divorce himself from, from, from that. Uh, you know, oh, that was mere politics, didn't count. The ends justify the means. But uh, the means became really the heart and soul of the Republican Party. The, the Willie Horton ads, uh, Michael Dukakis 
uh, let this guy out, the revolving door of uh, African-American, presumable crim- presumably criminals coming out of jail. This, this, this uh, was already becoming a uh, stock and trade of the uh, modern Republican Party. It is now virtually the uh, sum and substance of the modern Republican Party. But uh, that was how Bush uh, vilified Michael Dukakis, who let us remember, actually led in the polls in 1988, going into Labor Day, and then, and then came the vilification. Let me point to two other things that I think are the worst things he's done. First was nominating Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court. Every time there's a Republican majority, we can thank George Bush for his contributions of the man who's probably the most right-wing of all Supreme Court justices today. And I would say the second worst thing that Bush did was his last act as president, which was pardoning many of the Iran-Contra crew in order to block investigation of his own role in breaking the law. That that points the way for Donald Trump to follow the example of George H.W. Bush by pardoning the people who might testify against him. Could you review what this is about? Yes, in December of, of 92, after he had been defeated uh, the previous month by Bill Clinton for re-election, uh, just uh, uh, less than a month before he himself was to leave office, Bush gave uh, full pardons to six former Reagan administration officials, former Defense Secretary Cap Weinberger, President Assistant uh, Elliot Abrams, uh, National Security Advisor uh, Robert McFarlane, all of whom had been indicted and or convicted of criminal charges by the independent prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, who'd been called in to be the independent prosecutor of the Iran-Contra scandal. I think we just need to remind people what the Iran-Contra scandal was about. Reagan, as president, had armed the Contras, a right-wing army that was trying to overthrow the left-wing government of Nicaragua. And then Congress passed a law banning all American aid to the Contras. The Reagan people nevertheless continued to provide arms to the Contras with money they got from selling arms to the Iranians, who, by the way, had been holding Americans hostage The news of this secret deal got out, and that's why the special prosecutor was appointed to prosecute the people who had broken the law prohibiting aid to the Contras. Right, and of course Reagan himself said he didn't uh, know anything about it, and if, you know, that that might have stretched plausibility, but it was certainly characterologically plausible for Reagan. Not so for Bush. Uh, There were notes that Cap Weinberger had taken in which mentioned that Bush was involved in this, that he'd been in meetings about this, uh, and that Lawrence Walsh learned that Bush's private diary uh, might have had some material on this as well. But by pardoning Weinberger, as well as the other people who had been convicted, Bush essentially got himself uh, an out. So what Bush did here, just to summarize, Bush pardoned Weinberger, preventing a trial in which evidence of his own involvement in the scheme to break the law would have come out. And after that, special, the special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, declared, quote, the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed, close quote, as a result of Bush pardoning the people who could have testified against him revealing his own role in this the parallels to Trump actually are a lot closer than a lot of people realize, I think. Sure. I mean, uh, there's no question that Manafort and maybe uh, Mr. Cohen and uh, various other folks who are sort of 
twisting in the wind at the moment, like uh, General Flynn is brief, short-lived national security advisor. All these folks uh, and more probably have material on uh, on Trump and the uh, connections of his son and uh, what he what he knew about. Russian uh, subversion of the election. And, you know, the one way to uh, uh, get rid of this, uh, well, there are a couple ways. I mean, he could fire Mueller and see what the consequences of that could be, probably impeachment by the incoming Democratic House. Or he could uh, pardon uh, Manafort and uh, uh, some other folks uh, and uh, see if he can skate by on that. So it, I think it really is a, a pretty plausible parallel to what uh, George H.W. did in the waning days of his presidency. I want to go back to the Gulf War, which is Bush's supporters and admirers consider one of his greatest accomplishments because he did not invade Iraq and try to overthrow Saddam. He said the United States should not try to, would have to rule Iraq and that would be a disaster. Of course, his son did exactly that and it was a disaster. But the conduct of the Gulf War began with 40 days of bombing, including a lot of bombing of of what seemed like civilian targets, power grids, uh, food supply sources, killed uh, more than 100,000 Iraqis, not all of whom were troops. 293 Americans died. The fighting on the ground lasted only 100 hours. And Bush announced afterwards that he had put an end to the Vietnam syndrome, close quote. What exactly did that mean? And was it a good thing to put an end to the Vietnam syndrome? Well, the the Vietnam syndrome was uh, a term devised by Republicans in the uh, decades between the end of the Vietnam War and uh, American involvement in 1975 and the and the Gulf War, where uh, whereby uh, the Democrats and when the, uh, Carter was president, the Democrats in the White House didn't think going to uh, war to preserve the Imperium was uh, such a hot idea, and uh, this was ta- cast by the Republicans as essentially. A, uh, a lack of patriotism, a lack of sufficient nationalism, uh, a lack of good judgment on the part of uh, on the part of the Democrats, and so damn it, we're gonna you know have a little war. And the the mini invasions of uh, the Reagan uh, presidency didn't really count, or the uh, one contracted out offshored to the Contras didn't quite do it. So here was a a, a clean desert war. Uh, against an army, which uh, you know, for which the uh, defeat could be quick and dirty, but as you say, it was preceded uh, by a bombing campaign, which uh, uh, you know, somehow or other, the military, uh, you know, always says is precision and is clean and neat and yeah. involves fewer American casualties. Usually, the bombs themselves are rather indifferent uh, once they're dropped as to where they explode. And they're never as clean and neat as uh, the Air Force in particular says they are. So, I mean, and part of it was making a political point. That was also his, his re-election, you know, uh, mantra was that he had, re- you know, ended the Vietnam syndrome, restored American power and honor in case people questioned it after the Vietnam War. What was bad for him was that the economy had entered into a pretty uh, severe, if short-lived, recession. And it was the economy stupid, the mantra of the Clinton campaign uh, that led to disaster. So let me end by by naming some of the things he's credited for doing that were good. 
He signed the Clean Air Act, and he signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. Now, this is at a time when the Democrats had complete control of the Senate and the House. The vote on the Americans with Disabilities Act in the Senate was 91 to 6. In the House, 377 to 28. So for Bush to sign the Americans with Disabilities Act, how courageous an act was that? Yeah, well, this is, this, you know, this was also the Republican Party before Gingrich. After uh, the Gingrich Republicans started to dominate Congress in 1995, you wouldn't have gotten Republicans voting for the All-Hail Motherhood Act if a Democrat had introduced it. Uh, this was standard-issue Republicanism, and it was sort of the last gasp of the kind of, okay, we'll go along with the Republicanism that, that you certainly characterized, let's say, the Eisenhower presidency. And, of course, Bush was president during the fall of the Soviet Union, and he's given credit for working with Gorbachev during those years to end the Cold War, and that culminated in 1991 with signing the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty with Russia. How much credit should Bush get for the end of the Cold War? Well, the Soviet Union was on its last legs I mean, by the time Bush took office. I mean, the, the time gap between uh, the day he was sworn in and the fall of the Berlin Wall is about eight or nine months, nine months, actually. So I, I don't think really uh, he gets much credit for that. I, I do think that some of the, the most mistaken policies of the U.S. government with the, the, the former Soviet Union have to do with the expansion eastward of, of NATO uh, while excluding Russia. And that's on Bill Clinton's watch, not on uh, not on uh, George H.W. Bush's watch. I, I think that was perhaps the largest mistake we made uh, during that period, but that's more Clinton's than Bush's. One last thing that George Bush did that really was good, when he ran in 1980 against Reagan in the Republican uh, primaries, he called Reaganomics voodoo economics. That was a great thing. It was, and whoever was his speechwriter, or if he came up with, him, came up with it himself, all power, to that person. Explain yeah. what voodoo economics was. Reagan was uh, advocating uh, supply-side economics, that you could hugely cut taxes and you wouldn't run a deficit because the economy would become so massively productive that more taxes would flow in just as a result of that. That, of course, has been proven, was proven false during the Reagan presidency and every subsequent Republican presidency, Bush's son's presidency, and uh, and the Trump presidency and the their tax cut of uh, of a year ago. You know, you lower taxes on the rich, and the deficit simply grows. And uh, th- there's no evidence that it really particularly boosts the economy. So voodoo, indeed. Even though Bush told the truth about Reaganomics, he nevertheless got the Repu- got the Republican vice presidential nomination. How did that happen? Well. Reagan represented at that point a faction of the party, not the entire party. And Bush was, in some ways, at that point in 1980, the most plausible representative of, uh, you know, the last gasp of, of, of more O-line Republicanism. Plus, Bush agreed to go along with whatever Reagan said. That's the precondition for being vice president. So it was both the last gasp and perhaps more accurately the surrender of all-line center-right republicanism when Bush agreed to uh, accept Reagan's offer. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. Take care. 
Why is it so hard to believe that Trump supporters really do support Trump? Katha Pollitt has been thinking about that. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other publications. We reached her today in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, didn't it feel good to read that New York Times article a few weeks ago about the white women in rural Texas who hate Trump and love Beto just like we do? You know, the New York Times never stops looking <laughs> for the cracks in the wall of Trumpitude. Yeah, they're always going to, you know, the Daffodil Diner in Smallville, Nebraska, <laughs> and interviewing the retired farmers and, and all, hoping that they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm really disappointed in Trump's East tariffs. That's really terrible. But no, they don't say that. They say, oh, let's build that wall. <laughs> The problem is, what are we going to do about these people, especially the white women, 53%, the number we cannot forget, 53% of white women voters in 2016 voted for Trump. My assumption is we have the right ideas. We just have to find better ways of convincing those women who support Trump that they should change their minds. Well, good luck with that, John. Um, if you have an infinite amount of time to spend going one by one, making friends with them, and then slowly, slowly uh, invading their brain with your thoughts, maybe that will work. But mostly, those women are just like you and just like me. They think the things they think for a dozen reasons. And it's not really easy to change people's minds. I've been writing my column for, you know, 20 years or something, and I think I could probably count the people whose minds I've changed on one hand, and oh. most of them were young. Oh, come on. And, no, really. All right, two hands. Two hands. <laughs> and my, maybe my toes. <laughs> but I'm just trying to say, you, I, I think it shows respect for people to assume that they are as, as term, they've thought it through, and they have their ideas, and they're not just going to change it because you come and proselytize them. That's what I didn't like about that idea was the idea, well, several things. One, white women have some special bond with other white women that serves as a, a bridge to persuade. I mean, I, a New York Jew, have very little in common with an evangelical in Arkansas just because we share a skin color. And I think there was something sort of punitive about this suggestion. It was like, you white women, you can expiate your racism by converting other white women. And meanwhile, just to say one more thing, sure. while, we focus, while we focus on the white women, the 53%, you know, far more white men voted for Trump. And yet they're just, we just assume, oh, yeah, well, they're ungettable. They really, you know, they have their interests at heart. They're unpersuadable. They're beyond hope. Nobody's saying, white men, you have to go out and persuade the white men. Well, I think the reason, one reason for that difference is that Trump has been so incredibly sexist and harsh in his treatment of women, in his remarks on women, and, you know, the two dozen women who said they were sexually assaulted, white women who have daughters, might think that Trump is wrong to treat women this way, but apparently they don't. No, apparently maybe they do think that think he's wrong to treat them that way. They're just not voting that on, yeah. on that ground. Well, I heard a, I heard a roundtable with white women who voted for Trump who were asked about the uh, Access Hollywood tape, and there what they said was, 
well, this is what men are like. Men are pigs. You know, that's what they're like. They're all like that. I, I don't know. I, I know you would never say men are pigs, but there are women who think that. There are, and they're probably married to men who justify that conclusion every day. <laughs> There's a certain amount of evidence for it in daily life. That, and I just want to say also that it's interesting that, you know, feminists are always being said, oh, you hate men and you think men are so terrible. Actually, it's anti-feminists who think that. Anti-feminists are the ones who think men just are like that, and you can't change them, and you have to just adapt. I like that point. I like well, that point. Well, thank you. I give it to you. <laughs> so why did 53% of white women vote for Trump? Well, I think they voted for him for the same reason that the men did. They don't like immigrants. They want to lock Hillary Clinton up. They don't want their kids to go to school with black people. Uh, they be, uh, they think uh, Mexico and China have stolen our jobs, and Trump will bring them back. They want low taxes. They think MS-13 is going to kill their children. I mean, people have actually said this. They believe a lot of things that aren't true, like uh, global warming isn't happening. And um, they're deeply religious in a religion that is uh, extremely conservative. They believe that, you know, God works in mysterious ways, and apparently he sent us Donald Trump. That's right. You know, they do. I just want to mention, you know, abortion. I think for a lot of them, abortion is an important issue. They wanted to they wanted to get the courts to uh, overturn Roe and outlaw abortion to the extent that that's possible. But it is amazing that they believe that Barack Obama, who lo love him or hate him, was polite. He was completely scandal free. And they think he's the Antichrist. And yet the foul-mouthed, abusive, doing all kinds of criminal shenanigans with money, Donald Trump, is God's instrument. And then if you say God's instrument, they say, oh, yeah, like King David. King David, you know, he, he did some terrible things, but he was God's instrument. Yeah, well, your argument here is really about where we should focus our energy right. and our political strategy. Exactly. Where can we find more people to vote for progressive Democrats and what's your answer to that? Well, you know, I think that we see that answer in Georgia. For example, in the last election, Stacey Abrams and the New Georgia Project registered hundreds of thousands of new voters and, and brought them to the polls. And they pro she probably won that election, um, you know, with, except for all the dirty tricks and voter suppression disenfranchisement that Secretary of State running for governor, Brian Kemp, was able to, you know, perform on his own behalf. Um, but, you know, that made the difference for people lower down the ticket. For example, this, and this is interesting. Okay, Lucy McBath, yeah. a black woman whose son was killed with a gun. She runs for Congress from GA6, which is the district that uh, John Ossoff, this was a white, moderate, golden boy, famously failed to win, despite an enormous amount of money being poured. Millions, millions, $20 million. I think it was the most ever at that time. Um, and she won. And I think that's because of there was a new uh, emphasis on bringing in people who had been left out and marginalized in the process. Um, and I think we need to do more of that. Um, and meanwhile, you know, we can try to bring the Trumpies along. Um, but I just don't think it's going to be very successful. And there's some, there are some people who voted for Trump who may be amenable. Um, Gary Young, our colleague at The Nation, 
uh, talked to some people uh, in Ohio in the last election who did voted for Trump. They did not really like Trump very mm-hmm. much, but they have big problems, and Obama had not helped them with their problems in right. eight years. And so sort of out of desperation, they said, well, maybe this guy will help us. He said he'll help us. The Democrats have failed us. Let's see if he does. Those people may very well be persuadable the next time around. Yeah, I think it will depend on who the Democrat is. But, you know, I just want to remind you that, uh, what's his name, Richard Ocheda, Ojeda, thought he could win with that kind of an appeal as a Democrat in his West Virginia district. And he stressed his white working class roots. And he was very, uh, very macho and guns and all like that. He was pro-choice. That was very good. And he even acknowledged that he had voted for Trump himself. And he lost. It's not that easy. It's not that easy to win over Trump supporters. Of course, it's not that easy to register the unregistered. But well, you've convinced me. Let me say, you've convinced me. We're more likely. Oh, oh you've made <laughs> I've, my day. I've changed my mind. I used to think. Katha Pollitt. She wrote about conservative white women and Donald Trump for her new column in the Nation. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's fun. The 19th century black abolitionist Frederick Douglass is everywhere these days. If you Google his name, you get 33 million results. There are Frederick Douglass elementary schools and high schools all over the place. There are statues of Frederick Douglass in many places, including the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. That statute was unveiled in 2013 after being approved by the Senate. There's a Frederick Douglass Boulevard in Manhattan. It's 8th Avenue north of 110th Street in Harlem. And, of course, at that Black History Month event last year at the White House, Donald Trump said, quote, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is getting recognized more and more, I notice, close quote. For more on that 19th century black abolitionist, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he's the award-winning historian of the Reconstruction era. He's written many books, most recently, Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. He also wrote The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, It won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Bancroft Prize. He's on the nation's editorial board. He writes for the New York Times, the London Review, and the Nation. We reach him today in Manhattan. Eric Foner, welcome back. Nice to talk to you, John. Well, there was a time when Frederick Douglass was not praised by the President of the United States as, quote, somebody who's done an amazing job. Not so long ago, only a tiny number of white people even knew who he was. Uh, yes, that is certainly true. Um, you know, I think back to my uh, high school history education in Long Beach, Long Island, and um, the textbook that we used didn't even mention Frederick Douglass. Of course, it didn't mention any black people, basically. But, um, you know, in the black community, Douglass was always known and admired and revered. Most of the people who wrote about him until mid-20th century were African-American writers of one kind or another. But, uh, you know, black history was ignored and slavery was basically ignored and the abolitionist movement was considered at that time a kind of group of fanatics who brought on a needless war. So Douglas was just sort of dismissed along with all the rest of them. 
the civil rights era, of course, led to a rediscovery of Douglas. But before then, starting in 1950, I, I will say, as a family thing, my uncle Philip Foner published four volumes of Douglas's uh, great writings and speeches, editorials. You know, he was a newspaper editor, Douglas, and uh, really began to put Douglas on the map uh, by doing that. So, um, it's great that President Trump, who doesn't appear to know much about American history, has heard of Frederick Douglass. It's unclear whether he thinks he's still alive or not, but, um, you know, you take what you can get. Well, let's talk about Frederick Douglass's political ideas. They, they changed over the years. If we, if we start, I don't know, in the early 1850s, when the big question for the abolitionist movement was how to abolish slavery, uh, Douglass famously said, quote, I have no country, close quote. What did he mean? Douglas started out after, of course, he was born a slave. He escaped around age 20. He got to the north. Uh, that was a very dangerous thing to do. And for about 10 years, he was in danger of being captured and sent back until his freedom was purchased by a group of abolitionists for him. But um, he was a Garrisonian, a follower at that point of William Lloyd Garrison, the white abolitionist, who basically said, you know, the Constitution is pro-slavery. We should, in fact, break up the Union, he said, that the North is complicit with this evil institution of slavery. And um, Douglas followed him and uh, said, you know, I have no country means I am not recognized as an American in the country of my birth. And, of course, not long after that, the Supreme Court in Dred Scott ruled that no black person, free or slave, could be a citizen. And that sort of underscored Douglas's point. But by the 1850s, as your question sort of indicates, he was changing. He developed a different view of the Constitution. He, he saw it uh, as uh, opening the door to certain kinds of anti-slavery activity, particularly what actually happened in the 1850s, barring slavery from spreading into the West. He thought that abolitionists should take part in the political process rather than just rejecting it the way uh, Garrison uh, wanted them to. Yeah, he changed his mind, but, you know, in the greatest crisis in American history, the coming of the Civil War, the Civil War, just about everybody changed their mind uh, in some way. If, uh, in fact, if you didn't, there was probably something wrong with you. Lincoln did the same thing, of course, changing his mind about how to deal with slavery a number of times during his career. And then the war came, and then the war was over. And what what did Frederick Douglass think federal policy should be after the war towards the former slaves? I know he's been criticized for emphasizing what he called self-reliance rather than aggressive government action. Yes, Douglass believed in self-reliance. That is, you know, that's a 19th century idea, that people should rely on their own efforts to get ahead. After all, he was a perfect example of that. He's born a slave and nobody helped him, you know, I mean, a few people helped him escape, but it was through his own diligence and effort and self-education that he became a, you know, great spokesman. But at the same time, he said, yeah, there should be, we should rely on ourselves, but it has to be a level playing field. And therefore, the federal government has to intervene dramatically to create equality, to create, you know, in a sense, equal laws, equal treatment, protect black people from violence. You know, the Ku Klux Klan was uh, active at this time. Once you get a level playing field like that, which of course has never existed for African Americans down to the present day, then you can talk about self-reliance. So yes, he didn't think people should become dependent on government assistance. Uh, he thought that was bad for your character. But uh, certainly the way certain conservatives today, Clarence Thomas has done this, for example, pull out his statement, don't do anything for us, just leave us alone. 
to suggest that Douglas was really a kind of modern-day conservative is just a misreading of the history. What's relevant to the moment is he had a vision of what he called a composite nation. He welcomed immigration. He said the Chinese, who were despised at that time, we should welcome them. We should give them the right to vote. This is a country for everybody in the world who loves liberty. We shouldn't be barring foreigners who want to come to the United States. That was a pretty remarkable thing to be saying in 1869 when he gave his composite nation speech. And uh, today it resonates, obviously. You said Douglas was uh, a great orator of the 19th century. And, of course, oratory was the major medium of communication along with newspapers in the 19th century. My favorite Frederick Douglass speech alongside the composite nation speech that you've already talked about is his speech about the 4th of July. We still run it in the Nation magazine, I think, every year. Remind us what he said about the 4th of July. Douglass says the United States, through slavery, is guilty of crimes that would disgrace a nation of savages. Mm. Douglass's 4th of July speech is a is a critique of hypocrisy. He says, you know, this is a day when white people get together and celebrate liberty, equality, democracy, and yet at that point there were over three million slaves in the United States. To to slaves, the 4th of July is a repudiation of the reality of American life. And yet, at the very end of the speech, he turns it around and says, you know, actually the slaves are the truest Americans because it's only the slaves who believe in universal liberty, which is what the revolution was supposed to be based on. White people have abandoned that, but uh, it's the slaves who are carrying on the tradition of the American Revolution through their desire for freedom. So it's a, it's a brilliantly constructed and powerful speech, and yes, it, it ought to be read um, over and over again. You also say in your piece on Frederick Douglass for the Nation that he was the most photographed American of the 19th century. Why was that? Well, you know, I didn't realize that until, uh, you know, I, I was writing about David Blight's new biography of Frederick Douglass, an excellent book, and he makes this point. Douglass wanted to be photographed. He wanted his image to be out there. He, he knew, he thought about the presentation of yourself. He thought about the caricatures of blacks, which were rampant in... Um, newspaper cartoons and and other kinds of imagery blacks as savages blacks as stupid you know and incompetent and or animals he took command of his photographs i mean he was dignified he was he was someone you could admire in the photograph he insisted that that was how he wanted to be projected to sh- to counteract the demeaning images of blacks that were all over the place douglas was very very conscious of how the media spread certain ideas about blacks, and he wanted to uh, try to counteract that. You write in The Nation, we find ourselves today in a political moment that Douglas, in his later years, would have recognized. What do you have in mind? Well, in his, as he was pretty old, by the 1890s, Douglas was observing the retreat, the strong retreat from the ideals of the abolitionists, the ideals of Reconstruction, the Constitution had been amended, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to create equality before the law for blacks, the right to vote for black men, and yet that was all being taken away by the Supreme Court and by state governments in the South, in the Jim Crow system. And he was out fighting. He, he was still, he was pretty old, but he was out there speaking and denouncing the Supreme Court for their 
retrograde uh, decisions and uh, denouncing lynching, which was becoming very widespread in the 1890s. What I mean by saying we would recognize, Douglas would recognize our moment because we are in a moment, as is obvious, where rights that were taken for granted seem to be under attack again, including the right to vote, which yeah. he was, they were talking about in the 1890s. Progress is not unilinear. It's not always going forward. Sometimes things go backward. And Douglas was living in a time when things were going backward, and so are we, I'm sorry to say. And what was his message? It was to keep fighting. It was to agitate. It was to keep uh, true to your own values. Douglas, in, in his great uh, speech before the war, 1857, he said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. And uh, we can learn from that. You know, even at that dire time, Douglas didn't give up. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Eric Foner wrote about Frederick Douglass for the fall books issue of The Nation. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Eric. It's always great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks with Gloria Navarez. She's the first Latina to head the West Coast Conference of the NCAA, made up of 10 mostly religious schools that compete in athletics. Also, the NFL's hypocrisy about violence against women. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.